We are uh, continuing our series of messages on the vision and future direction for Riverview Baptist Church. What I've tried to do in this message is take some things that we talk about a lot. Uh, the mission and kind of the goal for the church is the Great Commission. And the way we express that here is guiding people to Christ-centered identity and Christ-centered influence. But I've tried to expand that to talk a little bit more, not just about the mission and the task of the church, but also to talk about the vision or future place we're hoping to go as a church. What's the destination we're trying to reach as a body of believers? And the word that I've tried to use to sum up the biblical view of a healthy local New Testament church is the word multiplication. What we have been talking about Uh, This series of messages is is that the church and individual believers are created to multiply. Individually, we're created to multiply through our investment in others. That's meant to be passed on to others. And that's meant to swell up into the church itself, multiplying, starting new churches, especially in places that are underreached or unreached. What I want to do the next couple of weeks as we close out this series of messages is talk specifically a little bit about how. I want to talk more about how God calls us to multiply both as individual believers and as the church. If indeed the church is called to be an institution that God puts together, a family, a living organism that's meant to start new churches, what I want you to know is I believe the key to that happening at the macro level is for individual believers to be multiplying. And here's the principle you're going to hear this morning and really next week that's going to drive a lot of this conversation. Healthy church multiplication only happens when believers are multiplying. It does us no good to start a new church, to set up a worship team, to do these things, if the people that are in it that comprise that church are not multiplying themselves. We want to be a place that sees individual multiplication driving the multiplication God calls us to have as a church. What I believe you're going to see in 2 Timothy 1 through 2 this morning is some principles, some help, some instruction about how we can be people that embrace multiplication as believers. Would you please stand with me to your feet as we honor the reading of God's Word? 2 Timothy chapter 2, just the first two verses of this chapter. Paul, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, says these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is God's word. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we pray in these moments that you would remove distractions, that you would illumine our minds to understand this word, that you would help us, you would open our eyes so that we can see it. And Father, we pray that you would help us not just be hearers of your word this morning, but would you help us be people who do your word. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. I want to show you this morning from these two verses, three components, three dimensions that we have to have in our lives if we're going 
to be people who multiply. Number one, the first thing that's got to happen if you're going to multiply is first, you must be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, this may seem like 101 stuff, but it's important that we start here because I believe that's where Paul starts. In order for multiplication to happen, you have to first, number one, be a disciple of Jesus. Look in your Bibles at verse 2. It says, "...on what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men." You'll remember Paul was an apostle. He was one of the first apostles that was starting churches, going into places that had never heard the gospel before. And he developed some younger sons in the ministry, Timothy being one of those, Titus being another. And Paul's writing this letter to Timothy to give him instruction about how he's to order the church, how the church should be governed and run as a family of believers. And in this little series of verses we're reading together, Paul reminds him of what he heard from him. Paul says, Timothy, remember what you heard from me with so many other witnesses around you. What's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when Paul had been teaching, what he had been teaching is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day, triumphantly defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. And the way you and I receive that is by repentance and faith in Jesus. This is the the foundation that Paul had taught Timothy and that he'd passed on to him. He says, what you've heard from me, remember that. And what Paul is assuming as a starting place for these two verses is that Timothy indeed has received that, that he's believed in that. And here's what we mean by being a disciple. A disciple then, in light of these verses, is someone who's rejecting self and embracing Jesus. What is a disciple of Jesus? It's someone who's rejecting the authority and salvation that's offered from within, from following your own dreams, following your own desires, gratifying your own passions, rejecting those things and turning from those things and following Christ. A disciple is someone who says, I acknowledge that I have a problem. And my problem is not my environment. My primary problem is not the things going on around me. The primary problem I have is within me. I have an internal problem, which is my sin. If we've had attitudes of hatred or lust or pride or anger, all those things are coming from this wiring problem we have within ourselves that says we should worship what we want rather than God. And the Bible makes it clear that because we want to worship self, we deserve death. We deserve a penalty over us of death under the judgment of a holy and righteous God. A disciple is somebody who says, this is all true. This is who I am. I've got to turn away from that stuff and I'm turning towards Christ because he took that penalty for me. When we sang a few moments ago so powerfully that it pleased God to look at Jesus and to pardon us. What we're talking about is that Jesus took our place. He substituted himself for us. And a disciple is somebody who's come to believe that, come to give their life to Christ because he's taken our place and our penalty. A disciple of Jesus is someone who repents of sin and trusts Christ. But there's more here. A disciple is not just somebody who does that as a one-time event, a one-time experience, a decision or emotional moment in their lives. A disciple is someone who continues to grow in the grace of God. Look in your Bibles. Don't believe me. Look in your Bibles. Verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now, a lot of times when we think about grace, we think about it just in terms of forgiveness and cleansing. And it is that, right? It's the initial cleansing and forgiveness that Christ Jesus offers us through his death and resurrection. What I just got done talking about just a moment ago. But here, Paul describes grace as a power. He describes grace as this force that's unleashed in our lives that transforms us. So watch this. Grace and the grace of good and the goodness of God is not just something that happens when I first come to him and then it's over. Grace is something that enters my life upon repentance and faith in Jesus and then continues to work all through my life. This is why Paul commands Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that's in Jesus. What's Paul talking about? It's interesting. I know, uh, I don't think we have too many Greek scholars in this room. Somebody break this down. This is a passive imperative verb, okay? And what that means is Paul is commanding Timothy to let something happen to him. He's commanding him. He's saying, do this. But what I'm commanding you to do is I want you to put yourself in a position to let the grace of God work through you. I want you, Timothy, to surrender yourself under God's mighty, powerful hand so that he will work through you. What's primarily the way we do that today? The primary way you and I put ourselves in a position for the grace of God to work through this is through the Bible. The Bible is the primary means that the grace of God works in and through us today. It's the picture of a sailboat, right? A sailboat is powered by the wind, But the people on the sailboat are very actively working to get the sails just positioned right so that the boat moves. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit is the power source for a believer. Our job is to move the sails of our lives around the Word so that the grace of God strengthens us. How do you and I live out this command that Paul gave Timothy? It's by putting ourselves in a position for the grace of God to work in and through us. Now, here's why this is so important. Listen to me very carefully. Multiplication cannot happen unless you have something to pass on. You can't give to someone else what you do not have. What this is describing is that not only there's a moment of salvation when you cross the line of faith and you become a disciple of Jesus, but also there's a continual working of God in your life. This kind of picture of what a disciple is, that's what you have to have in order to pass the faith on to others. This is really important because there's a lot of people in the world trying to change the world that don't know Christ. And on the surface, it's very good things, trying to, to, to deal with societal ills like poverty or, or lack of education or lack of food or water, different things like that. Those are things that we should be excelling at trying to provide in a fallen, broken world as we recognize the world is sinful. And because of that, there's always going to be evil in the world. We're to combat that. But the problem, ultimately, with thinking that we're fixing the world through dealing with the societal ills is we're not dealing with the problem behind those issues, We're not really dealing with the core issue of the sin of human hearts. So imagine it this way for a moment. Imagine that you're one of the uh, people on the Titanic. Okay? We go back in time. You're on the Titanic. You know what's going to happen. The Titanic goes down. And you're there in the water, freezing cold, with thousands of other people that are waiting to be rescued. And you decide 
that you're going to start trying to swim over and rescue people because you want to be somebody that helps. You want to be somebody that makes people's lives better. And so you start swimming and you come next to someone next to you and you say, here, I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to save you. And they say, great, save me. And you start looking at their situation and you're treading water and they're treading water and you go, well, I guess there's not really a whole lot I can do. I want to help you, but, but I really can't. They're going, what help are you going to do? So you swim to the next person. You swim to the next person and you say, hey, I'm going to save you. I'm going to help you get out of this freezing water so that you aren't killed. And they say, great, how are you going to help me? Let me get back to you. I'm not really sure. And you go from person to person to person and finally people go, get away from me. You can't help me until you first have been helped. You see, you can't help rescue people unless you've first been rescued. Unless someone pulls you out of the boat, out of the water and into a boat and brings you to safety, you're not in a position to truly help people at their most deep need. In the same way, the only way we can truly help others meet the deepest need of their heart, the biggest problem they have, is if we first have been rescued by the grace and the goodness of Jesus. So here's a question for you. This morning, as you sit here today, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you someone that's turned from sin, acknowledging your problem of your heart, and trusted Christ? I want you to listen. There's no other way out of the problem within you. Following your own heart, following your own dreams, doing what feels good to you will not save you. Doing good things, trying to help cure some of these problems in the world, that won't save you either because those things aren't the core issue. The core issue is you've got an internal problem that requires an external solution. Here's the good news for you. If you're not a disciple of Jesus this morning, Jesus Christ has made a way out for you. And the way out that he's made for you is his death and resurrection for you. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, our call to you today would be to turn from your sin and trust Christ for salvation. First thing that you have to have if you're going to be someone who multiplies is you must be a disciple of Jesus. Number two, second thing we see in this text is that we must be people who invest the word of God and our lives into other people. The second thing that's got to happen, if we're going to be people who multiply, is we must invest the Word of God and our lives into others. Look in your Bibles at verse 2. It says, "...on what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." The key word in this verse is the word entrust. Entrust. What does it mean to entrust something? Well, in this context, entrust means to give something to someone else in such a way that they view it as a special and precious gift. To entrust something to someone else means that I'm giving it to you. I'm giving something to you, a resource that's valuable. But in the act of giving it to you, I'm able to relay and to communicate that it's precious, special, and valuable. Okay? We see this in the financial world, right? Trusts, 
that are set up with money or with estates where upon a certain set of life circumstances or somebody reaches a certain age, they receive money or an inheritance or something like that, and it's given to them as this sacred responsibility to protect and guard what they've been given. But in a spiritual sense, what this is talking about is it's talking about the fact that we're to share Christ. We're to help people see the beauty and the splendor of the gospel in such a way that when they receive it, they want to guard it and protect it and pass it on to someone else. What Paul's doing is he's embedding in this idea of entrusting something, he's embedding the idea of multiplication. That there, there's to meant to be, thank you so much, there's meant to be a kind of ongoing passing on of the faith once it's given. Jesus Christ talked about this in one of his parables. One of the parables Jesus told that described the special and precious nature of the gospel was the parable of the treasure in the field. One day there was a man, Jesus tells the story, digging in a field and digging in this field that he was working, he finds this treasure chest. And when he digs the treasure chest out of the ground, he opens it up and he realizes there's gold, there's jewelry, there's diamonds, there's just incredibly valuable stuff in this treasure chest. He looks around for a minute, realizes no one knows this is here, closes it, puts it back in the field and covers it up. Time goes by, the man goes to the owner of the field and says, I'd like to buy your field. The man gives him a price and the man who's wanting to buy the field realizes he doesn't have enough money on hand to buy the field. It's too expensive. And here's where the story gets interesting. Jesus says that the man goes and sells everything that he has, all of his earthly, worldly possessions, to get enough money to buy this field. Now, people that are looking on say, what are you doing? It's this old, run-down, good-for-nothing field. Why are you selling all your stuff to get this field? Jesus says it's because the man realizes that in that field there is a treasure worth more than everything that he has. In the same way, when you and I share the gospel with other people, we're to share it with them, we're to invest in them in such a way that they see it as more precious, more valuable than anything that they have. That it's worth giving their entire lives over to Christ because what he offers is more precious and valuable than anything that they have. Now, here's how this works practically, okay? If we're going to entrust the gospel to people like this, there are two ingredients that we have to have in our investment. They're on the screen behind me. I'm going to talk about those. Two ingredients we have to have, but there's a goal that's driving it. So for the next few moments, I want to talk about the two things we have to have to entrust the gospel to others in such a way that they see it as special and precious and want to pass it on. But I'm also going to talk about the goal that's driving it behind it. The two things that we have to have are we have to invest the word of God and our lives into others. Let me talk about each of those in turn. The word of God. What we mean by that is that the Bible... This first ingredient is the content or the substance that God uses to show people that his goodness and grace is special and precious. It is through investing the word of God into people's hearts that they're really, truly transformed and changed. Now remember, as human beings, the way that God has made us is there's a connection between our our head, our heart, in our hands, okay? Biblically speaking, there's a connection transformation-wise between how we think, which drives how we feel, which drives what we do. And what we're saying is that the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the way people's thinking 
and their feelings are changed, which overflows into their actions. The Word of God is the source that the Holy Spirit uses to change us from the inside out. One of the reasons this is so important is because it's very easy when you begin to invest in people just to focus on behaviors, okay? Just to focus on behaviors. So I've met with a lot of people that have struggled with varieties of issues. You'll meet people that struggle with lust and pornography, which is ubiquitous in our culture today. People that are having marriage problems, people that are having problems with their finances, people having problems at work. And it's very easy when you're listening to someone talk to just to focus on these behaviors, these sinful actions. But what we really want is not just to change someone's behavior. What we want to see is that their desires change. You see, the reason I sin is because I want to. It's pretty simple. It's profound, but simple. The reason I sin is because in that moment, I'm desiring what sin and what I think it'll bring me. I'm desiring that more than Christ. So what we need to have happen in people's lives is we need their desires to shift away from wanting sin and what it offers to desiring Christ. We want to see people's desires shift from sin and gratification there to Jesus. Well, how in the world do we do that? You don't do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. The Holy Spirit empowering the Word of God is the only way our desires over time will change. Because as the Word of God transforms and renews my mind, if you're taking notes, Romans 12, 1 through 2, as the Word of God renews my mind, I see that Christ is better than this sin I would give myself to, and that over time the Word of God begins to transform my desires away from sin and towards Jesus. Think about it like this. Imagine that you're over a cup of coffee with a friend of yours, and over this cup of coffee, this friend begins to relay physical problems they're having. I've got this pain in my arm and my neck hurts and I've got this horrible thing going on with my stomach. And you say, you know what? I think the answer is just getting you something to manage the pain. Let's just, you know, put some Novocaine in your arm and your neck just deaden that so it doesn't hurt anymore. We'll find something to take the pain away and you kind of go on with your life. Will that treatment ultimately really help that person in the long run? Yes or no? No. Why? Because you're not dealing with the core issue that's causing it. You're just managing their symptoms. What you really need to do when you're hearing somebody say all those things to you is you need to say, you know what? I think we need to get you a doctor to figure out why those things are happening. We need to figure out what's causing your arm and your neck and your stomach to hurt. And we need to get you on a treatment plan, either dietary or medicine or something that's going to help fix this issue. Now listen very carefully. When I listen to people's spiritual and emotional problems without taking them to the Word of God, all I'm doing is managing their symptoms. When I listen to people explain their problem in their marriage or their finances or their lust or pick your issue and I don't take them to the Word of God, all I'm doing is is sitting over a cup of coffee saying, let's just find a way to deaden the pain and not really deal with the underlying issue. So here's the application for us this morning. If you're going to invest in other people, you should always do that with an open Bible. If you're going to invest and seek to multiply your life in someone else or other people, that could be somebody that doesn't know Christ, somebody that does know Christ, 
whoever it is, it should always be with an open Bible. Because when I open my Bible over a cup of coffee, what I'm saying is in humility, I can't fix you. I don't have it. I'm submitting myself to the holy, righteous King of kings and Lord of lords and saying, we need God to move in your life. Behavior management won't cut it. We need to see your desires shift away from sin and to Christ. And God is the only one that can do that. So how do we entrust the gospel to people in such a way that they want to pass it on to someone else? It starts with the word of God. But the second thing, the second ingredient you see on the screen behind me is that we not only invest the word of God, but we have to invest our lives in people. When I say invest our lives, here's what I mean. I mean that we have to open ourselves up, that we have to become vulnerable enough to people that they see us in the good times and the bad times. That they see our victories, they see our losses. They see our strengths and what we're good at, and they see our weaknesses. Why is that so important? Why do people need to see that? It's because in people seeing that, they see the grace of God working through you in all of those environments. Your life becomes a canvas on which God's grace is working. When I open my life up to someone else, I'm inviting them to see that all these things we're talking about are not theoretical or fairy tales. When I open my life to them, I'm showing them this is real. Jesus is real, and he's been faithful to me in weaknesses and victories and losses and on the tops of the mountains as well. This is hard for us, right? As Americans... Vulnerability, authenticity is difficult for us because while we may have thousands of connections, I think oftentimes we live life without any real community. I think social media has created a world in which we have hundreds if not thousands of connections with people without ever really getting to know people. So let me give you an example of that. Facebook, okay? If you're friends with me on Facebook... In the last seven months, on average, we post about 50,000 pictures a page a day. That's an exaggeration, okay? Not 50,000, but it's a bunch. And when we post those pictures, um, typically, Paige is smiling. She's happy. She's a seven-month-old baby that just looks like everything is great and right in the world. There could be nothing wrong when you look at that face. Can I tell you what we don't post? We don't post pictures of her at 3.30 in the morning when she's screaming and crying for her bottle and not happy at all. Now, we all do this, right? Every one of us do this. We all post pictures that want to put our best foot forward, right? Every one of us do this. Why do we do that? Because we want people to see that things are going well, that we're relaying some kind of picture of our life where things are happy and going positively. But the problem is that's not reality, is it? It's not reality that I have always got things going great. There's never a problem. Things are great and wonderful. And so while I might be connected with thousands of people on social media, I'm not really in community with them. I'm not really vulnerable with them. I'm not really authentic authentic with them. What we have to have if we're going to see people transform is we can't just invest in them as if they're a project. Okay, here's the Bible. Here's our coffee. We're meeting an hour for a week. Let's talk. Let me hear about your problems. I'm just going to listen. I'm not really going to engage. It is so easy for people to feel like they are projects. Vulnerability means you are more than a project. 
I actually care about you, and I care about you enough to say, I'm going to let my guard down. I'm going to let you know who I actually am. I'm going to let you see some of my strengths and my weaknesses, good times and bad times. Now, here's the key, okay? These two ingredients, when we pour them into people's lives, there's the two ingredients. Now, here's the goal I talked about a few moments ago. What's the goal of this whole thing? These two ingredients move us to this specific goal. I'm trying to help people as I invest in them take the next step. Okay? This is the key. If you get this, it unlocks how to invest in other people. What I'm trying to do when I pour the word of God and my life into them is I'm trying to help them take the next step in their walk with the Lord. If you are a human being here this morning, you have a next step you need to take with Jesus. Just curious, how many human beings in the room? Raise your hand if you're a human being. Not all of you raised your hand. Let's do that again. If you're a human being, raise your hand. Just making sure there weren't aliens among us. Okay, great. All of you are humans, so that means all of us have a next step. The first step that all of us take is conversion, right? We have to come to know the Lord. We have to repent of our sin and trust Him and begin to follow Him. That's the first step every single human being has to take if they're going to know the one true and living God. The second step many people start to take is they begin to grow in their faith. They begin to hear teaching, to be trained, and their identity in Christ begins to take roots. They begin to form a biblical view of the world rather than one that they pieced together before they came to know Jesus. And as that growth continues and begins to happen, a step that we want to encourage everybody to continue to take is that they begin to invest their lives in other people. They begin to multiply Now, this doesn't look the same for every person. It's not always linear. It's two steps forward, one step back. It can be very messy. But what we're trying to do is to help people take the next step in their walk with the Lord. I don't know how many of you have heard of this uh, running program called Couch to 5K. Anybody ever heard of the Couch to 5K thing? Okay, it's where if you've been sitting on the couch, proverbially speaking, and you've decided, I want to get healthy, I want to start exercising, that you can follow these steps and begin to run a 5K, 3.1 something miles, right? The problem is there's a lot of guys that start that program and say, I don't need those first 10 steps. I'm going to go to the 11th step. I think I can go ahead and run a half a mile or two miles or whatever. I'm going to skip over those things and get going. What happens is, you know, they have a heart attack and die on the street. Why is that? It's because they didn't follow the steps. Those steps are there to prepare their body to run 3.1 miles continuously in under three hours, right? That's why it's there. In the same way, there's a couch to 5K spiritual plan God's calling all of us to take as well. And what we're doing is we're helping people take the next step in their walk with the Lord. What you and I are called to be about as we invest in other people is we're called to be the people that are guiding them through that process. Now, here's the point I want to make and the warning I want to give you. If indeed entrusting people the gospel is coming through investing the word in our lives, and if indeed the goal behind that investment is to help them take the next step, let me tell you the greatest obstacle we as Americans in 2016 are going to face. The greatest obstacle I see to making disciples in 2016 in America is busyness. Busyness, without question, unequivocally, is the greatest obstacle to disciple making in America in 2016. 
Here's the way this works. God, every single week, gives you this much time. Did you know that time is a gift from God? Time is not yours. It's something God's given you. We talk about three things in in stewardship, like talent. That's your abilities that God's given you. Your treasure, that's your money that he's entrusted you with. But then we talk about time. And I would submit to you that I think time is probably the most valuable resource God gives us. Because time is the currency, it's the medium in which everything happens. You have this much time every week that God gives you. The problem is many of us have our commitments here. We have this much time and we have this much committed. We have no margin in our lives. The key to sustainable ministry in America in 2016 is a margin of time. We have to begin to build a margin between my commitments and the amount of time I have. So here's my time, here's my commitments. There's margin in there for me to spend time additionally outside of the things I'm normally doing, investing in people. That's not to say that the time I've already got committed isn't ministry. Many of you are involved in many different things, but you want to have freedom to be able to spend more time with somebody or invest more time in them. And we just as Americans, most of the time, do not have that. The key to sustainable ministry in America in 2016 is fighting for a margin of time in our lives. So let me just ask you this question. Those of you that are committed Christians, that that maybe you're thinking, maybe I should be investing in people. Maybe I should be on the lookout more to pour into people's lives with the word in my life. Let me ask you this question. What are you willing to give up in 2016 to make disciples? If you're a follower of Jesus... What are you willing to say no to to begin to say yes to making disciples? Think about it this way with me for a moment. Think about your busyness, okay? You're busy. You agree, yep, Spencer, you just painted my picture. My time's here. My commitments are here. Think about this with me for a second. What's behind the busyness in your life? What's driving busyness? Some, some of it, it might be, some of us are nice. We're just too nice. We say yes to everything. We never can say no. That, that might be a problem. I think, though, probably for most Americans, the reason we're so busy is because we think that if we're busy and we accomplish all these things, that then we'll be happy. That if I can just get my career to that next spot, then everything will go right. Well, once I, I'm going to be busy right now and crazy busy for the next decade of my life, but then I'll spend time with my family. Some of us, it's not just stopping the busyness, it's repenting of the lie behind the busyness. And the lie behind the busyness for most of us, for many of us, is we think that if we do all these things, that then we'll be happy, significant, satisfied, and gratified. How do we make disciples in 2016 one of the greatest obstacles is busyness. Let me make this statement, then I'll move on. For those of you that are committed Christians, I believe the thing that will keep you from making disciples is not necessarily some deep, dark sin, though that can happen. I think the greatest obstacle will be a thousand good things that keep you from the greatest thing, making disciples. Number three. This involves the church. If we're going to be a multiplying group of people, the church must Raise up multiplying leaders. The first two were kind of individually focused. This one speaks to the kind of church that we're called to be. Look at verse 2 again. It says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, 
and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There are two qualifications that Paul gives Timothy for investing in others. The first is faithful. That means trustworthy, reliable, people you can count on no matter what. The second word, the second phrase is able to teach. That means there's a proficiency that these people have in being able to pass on the faith. Wait a minute, Spencer. Is Paul saying then that believers should be selective about who they invest in and only invest in a handful of elite people? Now remember the context, okay? The context is Paul speaking to Timothy as a pastor. So I believe part of what we're reading is unique and special to pastors and to a church. So here's what I believe the principle that Paul's giving us is kind of pointing to. Pastoral leaders, especially leaders in a church they're kind of guiding and directing the congregation, they are to be selective in who they invest in. Now, we're called to help everybody. We're called to share the love and the message of Jesus with everybody. But the way the Bible calls pastors to do that is by raising up leaders who will share the burden of ministry with them. Here's the principle. Pastors should be helping the strong get stronger so they can share the burden of ministry of helping those that don't know the Lord and the weaker in the congregation. I don't, there's probably several misunderstandings that are running through our head. Let me just address one of them. I want to help everybody as a pastor. Okay, when I say that I'm supposed to help the strong get stronger, that does not mean that I don't care about you. If you come to me with a problem, you come to me with an issue, I'm going to do everything in my power biblically to help you work through that. But the, but the focus of my time as a pastor, it's got to be raising up leaders who can share the burden of ministry with me. I can't minister to all of you this morning. We probably had 300 people here this morning. I can't minister to all of you guys. Can't do it. Couldn't even if I could try. But what I can do is raise up men and women in this congregation that can minister in the trenches, not only of our church family, but of this community. Well, is there anybody in the Bible that modeled that kind of ministry for us. Anybody you guys can think of that focused on training a handful of people to lead the movement of Christianity? Jesus Christ! What did Jesus do? Jesus had a ministry to the crowds. He healed them. He taught them. He ministered to them. But if you look at the Gospels, the focus of his time in the Gospels is developing and training those 12 disciples because once he died and rose again and ascended to heaven, they were the front lines of leading that movement. I tell you that because for me, what does success look like for the pastor and the church? One of the key markers of success is how many multiplying leaders is a church developing and deploying? There's a lot of things that we can use to measure success in a church. You can talk about worship attendance. You can talk about finances. You can talk about baptisms. You can talk about pure evangelism and conversions. Those are all helpful metrics we've got to watch. One of the metrics I want you to know is on my scorecard as your pastor, and one of the things that I'm giving myself to and leading our other pastors to give themselves to as well, is raising up multiplying leaders. As a church... We have to recognize that that's important for us. So what I'm saying is an application. If you're thinking about how does this apply to me individually, we have to begin to shift our thinking away from the church being a cruise ship that exists for my comfort and my ease. We have to shift to thinking of it more like an aircraft carrier. An aircraft carrier feeds people. 
An aircraft carrier provides shelter and lodging for people, but they're not focused on their comfort and their ease. They're focused on preparing them to deploy them for a specific task. We have to quit thinking of the church like a cruise ship, more like an aircraft carrier. Here's another example. We have to quit thinking of the church just as a hospital for the sick, and we have to start thinking of them as a barracks for training people for ministry. Now, our barracks has got to have a trauma ward. Our barracks has got to have a place to deal with hurting broken people because all of us are there when we come to Christ and in seasons of our lives. There's always problems we're having. But I don't know about you. I would not want to go to a hospital whose success was keeping people in the beds. Would you? Let me see. The hospital's measure of success is you come there, they get you just to being enough on life support where you stay in a hospital bed the rest of your life. You wouldn't go to that hospital. You'd want to go to a hospital that says, our goal is not only to get you back to some kind of normal level, but to get you back to vitality so you can go back in the community and be a functioning member of society. In the same way, the church is not just a hospital for the sick. We have that. But we're moving people like a barracks does to train people for ministry. What's one of the markers for success that gets me up in the morning as your pastor? It's raising up multiplying leaders right now. One of the things we do every Sunday night here is this thing called Entrust. By the way, if you're wondering where we got that idea, now you know. Entrust, 2 Timothy 2.2. We're raising up there 25 leaders right now in that ministry that we're moving towards effective service for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A few moments ago, in closing, I'll say this. A few moments ago, I talked about next step. I want to close just by asking that question of you. If you're a human being, what do you think your next step is this morning? What is your next step? For some of you, the next step as you're sitting this morning might be becoming a Christian, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, repenting and trusting Christ for salvation. Others of you, you need to start growing. You need to start taking your roots down deep in who you are in Christ, your identity being in Jesus, not in your job or your paycheck or your size of your house, that Christ begins to transform you, begins to change you. Others of you, the next step needs to be that you begin to invest in people. You begin to pour your life into other people, in your life group, at work, different places, with an open Bible and an open heart that you begin to pour and invest in people. One of my concerns is that if I, as I say that, I think most of you probably say, I'm that second category. I need to learn some more. I need to grow some more before I begin to step out there and invest in people. I want you to, many of you, I believe, have been deceived into thinking you haven't learned enough. You haven't studied enough. You haven't gone enough Bible studies yet. I want you to, many of you, especially that are members of this church, I believe you need to take that third step. You need to begin to invest your life into others. But I don't have a PhD in systematic theology like you do, Spencer. I'm not ready to answer every question. You don't have to have that. You have an open Bible and an open heart to pour into people. God will use you mightily. The way that the church multiplies at the macro level is by encouraging individual believers to multiply. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us and challenges us. God, I do thank you for the clarity that you've brought about what the church is to be about, the task that you've given us. But Father, I also thank you for God, you're clear about the destination, the goal for the church, multiplication. God, I pray for every believer here this morning that knows you as Savior and Lord. I pray that you'd help them take the next step today. 
Lord, I made those three kind of big steps pretty simple. Lord, you know that there are layers and ups and downs and hairpin turns and that walk that you call us to live out for you. Lord, I do pray that you would lead every single person here to clearly identify their next step. And part of them living out this message this morning would be living that, would be embracing that next step. God, I thank you for people here today who may not know you, may not be Christians. God, I pray that you would speak to their heart today. I pray that you would show them the emptiness of trying to fill their life up with satisfying their desires following their own heart, their own dreams. I pray that you would show them the emptiness of that even now as I'm speaking. Lord, and I pray that you would draw them to yourself and you would show them the beauty and the splendor of Jesus. Oh God, that you, though you see our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion before you, that you lavish love on us. And you send your son to die for us and to rise again. And I pray that if there are people here that don't know you, that you would open their eyes to see the glorious splendor of Christ. They would turn from their sin and run into the arms of their Savior and be forgiven and cleansed and given this new life through your grace and mercy. God, I pray that this church would be a place that raises up a band, an army, of multiplying people that aren't looking to a pastor first to do ministry, but see themselves as the front line, the first line of ministry of this church family. We love you and we pray that you would help us as a church raise up those kind of leaders because we know we cannot do it in our strength. By your grace and for your glory, would you help us do that? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Would you stand with